Hi guys, it's Amber. I just wanted to send you a quick message before we begin. I'm recording here on a sunny day in Paris. You might be able to hear the birds and the traffic around me. I just wanted to start off the show by saying thank you so much to the Patreons, to the kind people who signed up to help support the show and keep it coming. So Michelle, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Eileen, that was really generous. Thank you again. And of course, Nico, that was amazing. If you would like to help support the show, then by all means, go over to Patreon. You can sign up. There's different tiers, different ways to support. And if you're an extra Muro subscriber, you even get bonus episodes. So this month, it is about the peach orchards of Montreux. Find out more if you uh, join Patreon. If you are not able to join Patreon, there's loads of ways to support the show. You can tell a friend, that's amazing. You could leave a review on Apple Reviews, that's also really fantastic and helps people find the show or, you know, just listen or send me a message. I love to hear from you guys. Um, so without further ado, let's get on with the show. Hello and welcome back to Pan Am. I'm your host, Amber, and today we are staying with the revolution. Last time we examined Danton's digit and where it might be pointing. In this episode, we shall look at another prominent figure from the revolution, Jean-Paul Marat, a very different character to Danton, and find out what happened when Charlotte Corday pointed more than a finger at him. If you are at all familiar with the French Revolution, you may have come across the painting by Jacques-Louis David called The Death of Marat, one of the most famous works of art concerning a revolutionary event. It has often been reproduced, most recently, and in my opinion very beautifully, in 2013, when Rob Wilson collaborated with the Louvre as a guest curator. He chose the theme of death and worked with Lady Gaga to recreate a number of paintings, including this one. The painting itself depicts the moment of Marat's assassination. He lies in his bath, holding in his hand a letter, his chest pierced, bleeding, stabbed by Charlotte Corday, just moments earlier. It's a gorgeous painting, but also a piece of revolutionary propaganda and a true story, and it speaks volumes both in what is shown and what is absent. So let's find out more about Marat, why Charlotte stabbed him, and what happened to his bathtub. Come with me and let's start by going to the Louvre to see what we can learn from this painting. Here we are in room 710 of the Denon Wing. Okay, we're going to have to imagine being here as sadly the Louvre is still shut. But picture, if you will, that before us is the painting of Marat Assassiné by Jacques-Louis David. Not especially large by Louvre or David standards, it stands at 1 meter 6 by 1 meter 3, so about 63 by 51 inches. The painting on display at the Louvre is actually a contemporary copy of the original. There are currently four copies on display in France, and the original can be found in Brussels. It's in Brussels rather than Paris because although at the time of the revolution this gorgeous piece of art was very much appreciated, following Marat's fall from favour, and indeed David's, the artists went into exile in Belgium and the painting was hidden away, unloved and unwanted. Don't worry though, David's career does not end there and there are plenty of other pieces of his on display at the Louvre. 
because although once a devout Republican, he became the favourite artist of Napoleon Bonaparte, which sounds complicated in terms of understanding his political ideology, but we're not here for that today, so let's move on. Now ask most French people who was Marat, and they will associate him with this bath and this painting, testimony to what an incredible piece of revolutionary propaganda it was. But who was Marat? Now, until I started delving into him, all I really knew was that he had been murdered in a bath and that he was a bit of a fanatic. But there is so much more. In fact, Jean-Paul Marat, Marat is actually written M-A-R-A-T, so Marat, if you will, was one of the most prominent and popular leaders of the revolution, despite the fact that he was not actually French, but born in what is today Switzerland, then Prussia. He studied in England and upon returning to France became a doctor and scientist and worked as a physician to the aristocracy. He was appalled by the inequality he saw and supported free education, paid for by taxing the rich and was inspired by the writings of Rousseau. All of this sounds quite reasonable, but he did have somewhat of a confrontational style. When his many, many letters to the Assembly went unanswered, he put his career aside and in the wake of the revolution began his own publication, L'Ami de Peuple, The Friend of the People, as a means of airing his views. The publication had a pretty radical tone and vocally supported the sans-culottes and working classes, and he was especially popular with them because of this. To give you a flavour, here are a few quotes from his publication. The class of the unfortunate, whom insolent wealth designates under the name of rabble, is the healthiest part of society, he wrote in 1790. A year ago, five or six hundred heads slaughtered would have made you free and happy. Today it would be necessary to slaughter ten thousand. In a few months perhaps you will slaughter a hundred thousand and you will succeed. This he wrote in December 1790. He goes on, it's by violence that liberty must be established and the time has come momentarily to organise the despotism of liberty to crush the despotism of kings. Then, a couple of months before his assassination, not long after the September massacres, he writes, let's all rise, let's arrest all the enemies of our revolution and all the suspicious people. Let's exterminate without mercy all the conspirators if we do not want to be exterminated ourselves. His inflammatory writing sometimes got him into trouble, and he had to go into hiding. Apparently, he even hid in the Paris sewers, and it has been speculated that it was following one such time that he developed an unfortunate skin complaint. But the more strident and outspoken he became, the more popular he became, especially with the sans-culottes and the radical factions. In 1792, he was elected as a deputy and quickly caused waves when he published that the people of Paris should take up arms to defend themselves from, amongst other, the Girardins. Now, the Girardins were an opposing group of deputies that Marat did not like, believing them to be the enemies of the Republic and too left-wing and soft. At one point, the Girardins attempted to get rid of Marat. He was arrested and put on trial. He wrote, quote, Citizens, it is not a guilty man who appears before you. It is the apostle and martyr of liberty. It is only a group of factious and scheming people who've brought a decree of accusation against me. He was ultimately found not guilty, and the public celebrated by parading him through the streets in a show of riotous support. 
He would then go on to be instrumental in expelling many of those Girardins, and this would have terrible consequences, at least for him. Now, although Marat was incredibly popular, especially with the people, and very well known thanks to his publication, he was rather unusual. We have seen that he had an incredibly outspoken and violent tone in his paper, but as a person he also behaved in an extreme or strange manner. Once, when he was accused of wanting to create a dictatorship, he apparently pulled out a gun, put it to his own head, demanding that the remark be taken back or he would pull the trigger. Likewise, one night when he heard tell of a wealthy Girardin having attacked him in a speech, he went directly to their house without even stopping to put on shoes. Then, Barefoot interrupted the dinner party and gave a speech denouncing the host before leaving. His health was also a real issue. He suffered terribly from migraines and to help soothe them he would wrap a cloth around his head soaked in vinegar. This, which aside from not really being a cure, must have been rather pungent. He also had a painful, and I've even seen it described as a disfiguring skin disease, picked up possibly from the sewers. It was a sort of very severe eczema, and he would spend days at a time in his bath in an attempt to soothe it. He even worked and had meetings from his bathtub. In a satisfying bit of trivia, papers covered in his blood from the day of the assassination were kept by his sister and were stored in the Bibliothèque Nationale de France. Scientists later analysed his blood in an attempt to identify what troubled him and were able to identify a type of fungal infection, Malassezia restricta, as the culprit. And with no cure possible for Marat at the time, he must have apparently suffered horribly. But there is more. There are also some truly strange descriptions of him physically. Some of them seem to be rather fanciful, and a reaction perhaps to his personality, rather than his physical appearance. Indeed, many of the top revolutionaries are often described in an unflattering light, and this has more to do with the terrible things they did than their hideous visages. In his great book about the revolution, Mark Steele gathers an array of descriptions of Mara from a selection of historians. Here are a few. Arms flailing about in all directions, he waded into the revolution with the reckless rage of a lunatic. He lived like a bat or owl, always hidden away from the light of day. That is according to Stanley Loomis. He was not sane, says H. Belloc, while Simon Shamer says, Marat made an art form of confrontational ugliness. My favourite, though, is his disordered clothes, his livid face, his haggard eyes has something disgusting and appalling that upset the soul. It seems hard to understand today why Marat was so appreciated at the time. His behaviour seems erratic, his views extreme and bloodthirsty, and his person distasteful. But there you go. One person who did not appreciate him at all was Charlotte Corday. Charlotte Corday was actually called Marie-Anne Charlotte de Corday, but became known as just Charlotte Corday by the revolutionaries, so we shall use that from now on. She was a young woman, only 24 years old, when she committed the most famous crime of the revolution, which, during a time of so much bloodshed, is really saying something. She came from a minor aristocratic family in Caen, in Normandy, but she was no royalist, rather a firm supporter of the Republic. Indeed, she described herself as a Republican before the Revolution. Her notion of Republic, however, was purer, an older version. 
When the relatively moderate Girardins were chased from Paris by Marat, many sought refuge in Caen and came into contact with Charlotte and her family. They told her of the events in Paris and, of course, of the dastardly Marat. She was horrified at what she was hearing and what she saw as the excesses of the revolution, particularly the recent September massacres, and she blamed Marat for them. Danton, as we have discussed last time, was the justice minister at the time of the massacres, and without getting into it again, he has been criticised for not doing anything to prevent them, or at least to stop the most bloody excesses. Marat, on the other hand, was elected to the Committee of the Surveillance of the Commune, the group who, for want of a better word, organised the massacres, and he made his views perfectly clear. Quote, we must purge the prisons and not leave traitors behind, he wrote. Or when he urged, quote, good citizens to go to the abbey to seize priests and especially the officers of the Swiss Guard and their accomplices and run a sword through them. Danton may not have done much, but Marat was not mincing his words. He wanted bloodshed. So Charlotte decided to take matters into her own hands. Telling no one of her real plans, she travelled to Paris, found a room in a hotel in what is today the first arrondissement, with the intention of killing Marat, in the hope that this would bring about the end to the bloodshed and violence. Had she been better informed, she may have gone after Robespierre, who seemed far more dangerous, more powerful and bloodthirsty, but she was not from Paris and not directly involved in politics. Instead, she was spurred on by idealistic notions of republic and destiny. Originally, her plan had been to kill Marat at the assembly, in public. But she found out that due to his terrible skin condition and worsening health, he no longer went. So, undeterred, she adapted her plans. Early on the morning of the 13th of July, 1793, a day before the fourth year of the Bastille celebrations, she went to the Palais Royal, to the Galerie de Valois, which is now part of the cultural ministry, and bought a kitchen knife. She then took a cab to Marat's house at number 20 Rue du Cordelier, in what is today Rue de l'École de Médecine, just around the corner from our friend Danton. She knocked on the door and asked to see the man himself, but she was denied entry by the concierge. She tried again that afternoon, but again she was sent away. I cannot imagine what she must have been thinking, alone in Paris, the weight of her plan laying heavy on her shoulders. Another person might have thought, well, I've given it my best shot, I'll just go home. But she was determined. Finally, around seven o'clock in the evening, she went back for the third time. She had with her a letter, and she said she had news of a treacherous group of Girardins in the Caen region. She was being turned away for the third time when Marat himself heard the commotion and told her to be sent into him. He was, as he often was, in his bath in an attempt to soothe that skin complaint that plagued him, but he was nonetheless working. Now, it might seem curious to receive people while in the bath, but... He was a little odd, dedicating to rooting out Girardins, and the bath was not the modern bath you might be imagining. It was a boot-shaped metal tub that you would sit in with your legs and body fully enclosed, so his modesty would have been relatively preserved. Charlotte came in and started telling him the fictitious story of the disloyal Girardins, and the two were left alone. She then drew her knife and stabbed him just once in the chest. 
Nearly a hundred years later, famed forensic pioneer Lacassange would recreate the scene. In order to do so, he obtained a cadaver of approximately the same size and build as Maha, placed it in a bathtub, and attempted to stab him in the same manner, angle, and with the same knife that had originally been used. Charlotte Corday was a confident, educated young woman, and not a street-smart killer, but her blow had been incredibly lucky. Upon autopsy, they discovered that the knife had slipped between Marat's first and second ribs, a space no wider than a twentieth of an inch, clipped the aorta, passed under the pulmonary artery and entered the left atrium of the heart. If she had held the knife at any other angle or rotation, the ribs or the sternum would have deflected it. As it was, the blow was fatal and the blood would have been copious. She was immediately seized and arrested. Now, if the events of the assassination had seemed theatrical, her trial and execution continued in the same manner. It is perhaps not for nothing that she was the great-great-great-granddaughter of famous playwright Pierre Corneille. At the trial, she did not deny killing Marat. To the contrary, she believed what she had done were for noble reasons, saying, I killed a man to save a hundred thousand, a villain to save innocence, a ferocious beast to give rest to my country. It was, of course, an absolute sensation in Paris. Even today, women who kill cause a stir. So imagine such a young woman, such an intimate scene, such a violent death, and, of course, the touch of celebrity. They questioned her to see if she'd acted alone, why she'd killed Marat. They wanted all the details. She said it was because she believed him to be guilty of crimes against France, against innocent people, and against the true values of the Republic. She thought him a monster and that her act would give peace to the country. She remained calm and composed throughout the trial. She was, of course, found guilty and sentenced to death the following day. She asked to have her portrait painted to give her family to remember her, and this was allowed. I'll put a picture on Instagram for you to see. She paid the painter with a lock of her hair, which had been cut in preparation for the guillotine. She also left quite a heartbreaking note to her father, which I'll read to you in part. Forgive me, my dear Papa, for having disposed of my life without your permission. I have avenged many innocent victims. I have prevented many other disasters. The people, one day disillusioned, will rejoice to be delivered from a tyrant. Farewell, my dear Papa. I beg you to forget me, or rather to rejoice in my fate. The cause is beautiful. I kiss my sister, whom I love with all my heart, as well as my relatives. Do not forget this verse of Corneille. The crime makes the shame and not the scaffold. It is tomorrow at eight o'clock that they judge me, this 16th of July. What I find saddest in this letter is her belief that her actions will make a difference. She was undeniably brave and sincerely believed she was doing something for the greater good. She was a martyr to the Republic. But in reality, her actions did not create the peace she hoped for. It was Robespierre who held the real power, and if anything, he used this assassination as a means to justify the deaths of thousands of Girardins and Royalists during the Terror. It is not until his death that the Terror really comes to an end. Also, it seems a sadly futile act. Surely Marat would have been guillotined like all the others, or even succumbed to his many health issues. Of course, Charlotte could not have known that, and it does not take away from her bravery. 
She finished her letter with a quote from Corneille, remember her distant relative. The crime makes the shame and not the scaffold, which I take to mean that she does see murder as wrong, but that dying for your beliefs is not. We surely cannot condone assassination or murder. It is a terrible crime, and they never seem like a great idea, and of course it can go very wrong. World War I was sparked through a rather unfortunate assassination. But Charlotte's impulse to stop a tyrant is understandable. History is full of real monsters, and maybe the world would be a better place had their paths crossed Miss Corday or one of her sisters. Could her form of stealthy justice save thousands? We cannot know. The very next morning, those revolutionaries really do not mess about, the cart came to take her to the Place de la Revolution, Place de la Concorde today. She chose to stand for the whole journey, even though it was surely wobbly on those old Paris cobbled streets, and especially considering that her hands were tied behind her back. She wanted to see the people, and a lot of them had turned out to see her. The dramatic effect was added to by the fact that she was wearing a red overblouse because she was a condemned traitor who had assassinated a representative of the people. And, as if all this wasn't enough, the weather decided to join in. Overhead, dark clouds had been gathering, and as they set off, an almighty thunderstorm started. Despite the rain, she stayed standing, and the crowd who had come out to see her also remained. In his memoirs, Sanson, the executioner, remembered her bravery, calmness and resolve. Apparently, he asked her if she wanted to sit down, if she found the journey long. She replied, we're certain to get there. Likewise, when she first saw the guillotine, she looked up at it. Sanson made an effort to shield her from it, but she rebuked him, saying that she was curious to look upon it and that as she had never seen it before. She then walked unaided up to the platform, and in a moment, the terrible blade fell, and she was no more. It was four days since the assassination, the 17th of July, 1793, and ten days before her 25th birthday. It was at this point that a carpenter, hired to make repairs to the guillotine, took her head from the basket, held it up for the crowd to see, and slapped her face. Onlookers reported that she had an unmistakable look of indignation. For this, he was jailed for four months. Following her execution, her body was taken to be autopsied to see if she was virgin because, of course it was. What difference this would make, I cannot say. They were surprised to find that indeed she was. Of course, this added to the sensationalism of the story and her legacy, and she could join a host of other virgins who have played important parts in the history of Paris and France. She was then buried, without ceremony, in the Madeleine Cemetery. And put a pin in that, as we'll be coming back to Charlotte's grave later. Guys, I've actually decided to leave it there. This is a longer episode than I anticipated, so instead of trying to do it all at once, I'm going to turn this into a two-parter. So I will release it next week, so come back to listen and find out what happens next to Charlotte and Mara. Um, as ever, I'll pop up some pictures on Instagram and, of course, sources and pictures on my website. Feel free to get in contact with me. I love hearing from you. Do subscribe because, you know, I never know when those episodes are coming out. I've just launched a Patreon, so if you would like to support the show, that would be fantastic. I'll put a link in the show notes. And as ever, thank you for all the support and help from Christopher, who makes everything sound fabulous. Take care of yourselves and speak to you soon. Bye.